0: Trickish history takes a deep dive into stranger than fiction historical events and plops the listener down in the middle of the bizarre and compelling action. In season one, we head to Cleveland, Ohio for the Ten Cent Beer Night Riot of 1974. Welcome to Heading for Home, a 10 Tencent Beer Night Odyssey. I'm Eric Olson. Every year, the media celebrate the anniversary of the 10 Tencent Beer Night Riot of 1974 at Cleveland Stadium. Fans awash in cheap beer, streaked, chanted obscenities, pelted the players with everything from hot dogs to explosives, then charged the field and brawled viciously with the visiting Texas Rangers and their own home team Indians. This is that story. Russia fans resplendent in Indians gear arrived at the Brook Park train station. A group of kids not more than 17 stumbled about, brazenly passing around what looked and smelled like a joint. As the train picked up speed heading downtown, riders took in the gritty sights of Cleveland. Long abandoned buildings festooned with graffiti, decaying bridges, scattered smokestacks billowing toxic plumes into the summer sky. The train made a stop and additional passengers piled in. Fans seemed extra excited about the game, a bit odd considering the Indians' mediocre 24-25 record. Actually, the 24-25 record was pretty damn good for the Indians, and that was the problem. The Indians hadn't been in the World Series since the meltdown of 1954, a team that had finished with a near impossible 111-43 record in the regular season, a team with five future Hall of Famers, Larry Doby, Bob Feller, Bob Lemon, Hal Newhouser, and Early Wynn. And they were unceremoniously swept in four games by the lame New York Giants. Okay, the Giants weren't lame, they had Willie Mays. But the disaster broke the heart of the entire region. 78,000 fans fell silent as Indians pinch hitter Dale Mitchell popped up to end game four with a fizzle. It was a crime, an outrage. The tribe hadn't sniffed the postseason in the 20 years since, and they hadn't finished above 500 since 1968. So a record of 24 and 25 on June 4, 1974, had the smell of hope to it. The train rolled into the next station, and a group of three scruffy guys and two girls got on board. The three guys groaned and grunted as they lugged, shoved, and rolled a five-gallon igloo cooler onto the train with the girls trailing behind. The cooler had the tidy little label stuck to the lid that said, Pina Coladas. A tall, skinny fellow with bushy blonde hair and John Lennon glasses hoisted the sloshing liquid load onto a seat and plopped down next to it, letting out an exaggerated sigh of relief. One of the girls a Brunette wearing a red tank top and flare jeans talked to the blonde guy.
1: How about you pass that thing around, Dave? That way it won't be so heavy. You don't want to haul that thing all the way down Ontario. Linda, where
0: are those cops? Linda pulled some large plastic cups from a large, fringed leather satchel and handed them to Dave. Dave was perched directly below a sign that screamed, No food or drink on train! As he blithely filled up cups and passed them around to the crew of five. The liquid, which had the appearance of frothy milk, splished and splashed in the cups as the makeshift bartender dispensed it on the moving train. Bottoms up, kids. Dave and his fellow scofflaws raised their cups, leaving sticky wet trails on the floor behind them.
1: Yeah, to the Indians! And to Billy Martin! <laughs> fuck that guy! Yeah, fuck Billy Martin. And all the rangers, for that matter.
0: The Igloo crew had no sooner downed their drinks than their cups were instantly, almost magically, refilled. It wasn't long before the party expanded. Dave offered a beverage to a professionally dressed, full-figured, middle-aged woman who sat nearby. Wow. Care for a pina colada? I thought you'd never ask. The woman smiled and slurped down her tropical contraband with appreciative gusto. And before you knew it, the whole back half of the train was whooping it up shamelessly. Two kids, apparently brothers, started arguing. Dave Duncan is too a crate player. You watch, he's going to explode and start launching bombs out of the park. He might even do it tonight. He's got real power. The older boy rolled his eyes. No, you don't. you don't know what you're talking about. Duncan may have some power, but his average is like 175 or something. He's a nobody, man. He is just a catcher. You huge flying turd. His average is low because he broke his wrist last season, and he's still coming back. Not to mention, he calls a great game, and he has a rocket arm. You're a pitcher. You should know. It makes you a double dolt, you dolt. Duncan's great. You'll see. A man in his 50s with a trim beard and thinning gray hair who'd been quietly reading the paper turned around and spoke up.
1: Actually, the kid's right. Duncan's a fine catcher. He's no punk. They had to hold him back in Texas after that random mess last week. Duncan was going to climb into the stands and fight the whole stadium. I wouldn't want him coming after me. He looked like a stone-cold killer.
0: Yeah, I heard there was a dust-up at the game last week in Texas. The Indians were brawling with Rangers fans?
1: Oh, it's been the talk of the town. Pete Franklin's been hammering on it all week on Sports Talk. Here's what happened. In the fourth inning, Rangers DH Tom Greve walked off Bob Johnson. Then Lenny Randall singled to center, and Greve stopped at second. For Gosey grounded hard to third. Lowenstein stepped on the base for the force, then fired over to Brohammer at second for the double play. So Randall comes screaming into second with spikes up. Totally Bush League. Tries to ventilate Brohammer, who somehow holds onto the ball. In your face, Randall. Bush League cheater Randall comes up again in the eighth with two outs. Wilcox is pitching now, and he throws one behind Randall to deliver a little message about tenderizing our players. Randall skips out of the way, then poses there, glaring at Wilcox. On the next pitch. Randall drags a butt down first baseline. He does have pretty good back control. Wilcox scrambles over to pick it up, and Randall runs way inside the baseline, throws both forearms into Wilcox's face. Wilcox goes flying ass over teacups, but holds onto the ball for the out. In your face again, Randall. Randall bounces off Wilcox like a pinball, screams towards first where he tries to pull the same weak sauce on John Ellis. But Ellis outweighs Randall by about 60 pounds and just plows him into the turf. Bench is clear. Everyone is running around throwing punches and screaming. The crowd goes crazy, egging on the fighting. The umps finally get things under control and the team shuffle back to their corners. But some asshole Ranger fan tosses beer down into the Indians dugout and hits Dave Duncan. Duncan goes bananas. He scrambles up onto the roof of the dugout, screaming and yelling and beating his chest like King Kong. He's going to take on the entire stadium. Frank Duffy tries to pull Duncan back down into the dugout for his own good. But Duncan whirls around, eyes blazing, nearly tears Frank's head off trying to get loose. Then you know what those shitty Rangers fans do? They all start chucking beers and hot dogs at the Indians. So yeah, Duncan's no punk, but those Rangers are, and so are their fans.
0: The gray man returned to his seat, grabbed the newspaper he'd been reading,
1: held it up in the air, and shook it. The Bush League cheating Rangers are about to get a taste of their own medicine. Check this
0: out. On the paper was a cartoon with Indians mascot Chief Wahoo wearing boxing gloves. The caption read, Be ready for anything.
1: After the Texas brawl, a reporter asked Martin if he was going to take his armor to Cleveland for tonight's game. Martin said the tribe wouldn't even have enough fans to show up for him to even worry about. A serious looking
0: gentleman with a thick dark brow and girth to match spoke.
1: Yeah, well, I'm with Pete Franklin. It's time we show those Rangers and that asshole Billy Martin what Cleveland's really made of. If he thinks we aren't going to show up, he's in for a big surprise. We're all showing up. The man held up
0: a paper bag, drew it to his lips, took a profound swig, raised the bag and its mysterious contents back up again and shouted,
1: To the tribe! (laughs) To the tribe!
0: Another passenger, a 40-ish man and grinning Chief Wahoo regalia, waved a different newspaper, the
1: Cleveland Press. Look here what Jim Bram wrote. Ringe your stein and get in line. Billy the Kid and his Texas gang are in town and his 10-cent beer night at the stadium. This is going to be a wild one.
0: The train slowed abruptly as it entered the terminal tower station downtown. From there, the passengers would have about a half-mile walk to Cleveland Stadium on a warm, balmy evening. Cleveland Municipal Stadium, semi-affectionately known as the Mistake on the Lake, was built at the cost of $3 million, that's $57 million in today's money, and opened on July 1, 1931 as a multi-purpose stadium on the shore of Lake Erie with a seating capacity of 78,189, at the time the largest in the world. The first event at the stadium was a championship heavyweight boxing match, between Max Schmelling and Young Stribbling on July 3rd, 1931. Schmelling won. The stadium hosted the Indians from 1932 to 1993, and the NFL Browns from 1946 to 1995, as well as concerts and any number of other events. The rickety old Hulk was torn down in 1996, and its concrete and steel guts were tossed into Lake Erie to create an artificial reef. Nearing the 7.30 game time, the stadium was bustling with a crowd of around 25,000. Great for a Tuesday in early June. A noisy dispute broke out in the seats behind home plate.
1: Hey, you idiot! You spilled beer all over me!
0: A tall, skinny guy in his 30s with a sandy beard and wet Indians jersey yelled indignantly. Well, if you hadn't taken the beer off the cart before I was ready, that wouldn't have happened. The beer guy shoved cash roughly into his vendor's apron.
1: You aren't seriously blaming me, are you?
0: <sighs> Sir, do you understand how physics works? See, there's four beers in this holster. Look right here. Four slots. If you remove one of them, then it shifts the weight and the beer spills. See? It's science, man. Next time, maybe keep your hands to yourself and wait your turn. Don't tell me what to do, you checkers. He gestured toward the vendor with the beer in his hand and accidentally spilled beer on a well-coiffed blonde woman in front of him. Her husband stood up, displaying the 50 pounds he had on the slosher.
1: How about you shut the hell up and drink your beer? Hey, screw you. It's not my fault this idiot doesn't know how to do his job.
0: The thin guy theatrically tossed what was left of his beer on the vendor. The vendor dropped his cart and shoved the beard guy, who stumbled and toppled onto the blonde woman in front of him. She shrieked and disappeared beneath him. With surprising agility... Her beefy husband hopped up over the back of his seat onto the row behind him, yanked the thin guy up off his wife, and tossed him at the vendor, sending even more beer flying amid a chaotic jumble of arms and legs. Being that the enemy of my enemy is my friend, thin guy and beer guy untangled themselves, glanced in quick agreement, then dove on the beefy guy. The three wrestled and tussled in a whirlwind of anger and suds while fans around them scrambled away from the conflict with varying degrees of success. Stop it. Security guards arrived and escorted the three combatants up the stairs with a very upset, wet, and disheveled blonde woman trailing behind them in tears. And the game hadn't even started. Rangers manager Alfred Billy Martin, the scrappy, hard-drinking former Yankee second baseman and MVP of the 1953 World Series, strode toward home plate to hand his lineup card to umpire Larry McCoy. Martin did two things well. Piss people off and win baseball games, both as player and manager. This was a guy you'd just love to hate, unless he was on your side, which in this case, he was not. Martin, never one to shy away from crowd interaction, responded by tipping his hat, bowing expansively, and blowing kisses. Next time on Heading for Home, the game actually begins. Pitchers swap wives, home runs and other explosions, bouncing balls, and boobs. Heading for Home is written and executive produced by Eric and Don Olson. Sound design and original music by Richard Ingraham. Performed by Eric Olson, Buck McWilliams, Alex Olson, Mars Fargo, Tom Fulton, Nathan Welsh, Marty O'Sullivan, Don Olson, Donna Westfall, Brian Westfall, and Richard Ingraham.
1: History takes a deep dive into
0: stranger than fiction historical events and plops the listener down in the middle of the bizarre and compelling action. In season one, we head to Cleveland, Ohio for the Ten Cent Beer Night Riot of 1974. Welcome to Heading for Home, a Ten Cent Beer Night Odyssey. I'm Eric Olson. Every year, the media celebrate the anniversary of the Ten Cent Beer Night Riot of 1974 at Cleveland Stadium bands awash in cheap beer streaked chanted obscenities pelted the players with everything from hot dogs to explosives then charged the field and brawled viciously with the visiting texas rangers and their own home team indians this is that story there was aggression in the air before the game even started she shrieked and disappeared beneath him with surprising agility her beefy husband hopped up over the back of his seat onto the row behind him, yanked the thin guy up off his wife, and tossed him at the vendor, sending even more beer the flying. The Indians got in behind camp. early, and the mood was explosive. Designated hitter Grieve settled in the batter's box and promptly sent a majestic blast over the center field fence for a home run. As Grieve crossed home plate for the first run of the game, a single profound explosion thundered in the stands on the first base side behind the Indians' dugout. A streaker took to the base paths. A completely naked man ran onto the field and slid into second base, stealing the thunder from Greaves' second homer. Though chippy, the crowd was also creative and expressive. There was a family of mooners. A pair of fans bounded onto the field and dashed into fair territory in right field. The pair stopped, dropped their pants, bent over, and with the uniformity of synchronized swimmers rotated 360 degrees, making sure the entire stadium equally shared in the glories of their double moon salute. As the tribe fell into a five-to-one hole and the alcohol took hold, stadium announcer Bob Kiefer pled for sanity. Ladies and gentlemen, the Indians,
1: players, and management request that you stop growing things. And stop running onto the field. Thank you for
0: your cooperation. The field looked like a perverse circus with fans bounding onto it from all corners of the stadium, some doing somersaults and cartwheels, some dancing. Loons in left field were still trying to pull the padding off the wall as the grounds crew, brooms in hand, poked and shooed at them like they were a pack of raccoons rooting through the trash. ACK! Ah, the beer ran out! Attention guests!
1: All concession stands have run out of beer.
0: Just kidding. However,
1: beer may still be obtained from the trucks on the far side of the outfield
0: fence. Despite the drunken streaker's destruction and explosions, the Indians were on the verge of a huge comeback. He reached back and spun a curve up to the plate. Ashby connected late off the end of the bat and sent a squipper toward Larry Brown at third, who charged and grabbed it cleanly, but had no place to go with the throw. Crosby dashed to third, Torres to second, and Young Ashby stood on first with what the would young man moved like a major. spy in a cartoon, crouching low, stepping high tiptoeing his way across the field toward Burrow, The dam burst.
1: Oh, this is an absolute tragedy. Absolute tragedy! I've been in this business for over 20 years, and I have never seen anything as disgusting as this! I haven't either. Ladies and gentlemen, may
0: I have your attention, please? The Indians team and management request... That you clear the field of play immediately. Thank you. Don't miss Heading for Home, season one of Freakish History the bizarre true tale of the Ten Cent Beer Night riot at Cleveland Stadium in 1974.